Welcome to The Hoop Commitment. I'm your host, Mike Nielsen. Join me every week to get inside the greatest minds in basketball nutrition, training, and leadership to elevate your game and improve the way you eat, train, and lead. Welcome to episode 86. I've been prepping for my athletes to return to campus by studying, brainstorming, and creating with our men's basketball strength coach, Travis Knight. It's so fun to be around people who have open minds and that love to experiment. And with all the success our teams have had over the past 20 years, it's inspiring to see our coaches continually challenging their beliefs and practices to make sure what they're doing on the court is maximizing the player's time. And Travis and I are trying to do the same thing in the weight room, asking tough questions about our program design and how we measure success. And while this is a big topic to cover, we've been simplifying things by anchoring to nature's principles. And one of the best I've seen at doing this also happens to be today's guest. Pat McCloskey, or Patty Mac to his friends, is the director of training at One to One Fitness in Washington, D.C., and has been on the faculty of the Grand Institute since 2010. He was instrumental in creating the Certification in Applied Functional Science, which is one of the staples of my training education. And we spent the whole hour talking about the big rocks of training, how he implements the principle of 3D, and how to create learning environments for athletes. Here's Patty Mack. Patty Mack, welcome to the Hoop Commitment Podcast. How you doing? It's a pleasure to be here, Mike. Thanks for inviting me. I've been waiting a long time to be asked on as a guest. Well, you know, I was going to have you on early, but my interview skills weren't ready yet. I had to brush up. I've had to do a lot of studying because, you know, if you got the man coming on the show, you want to be prepared. So I feel like I'm almost ready now. Well, if you're almost ready, I'm ready for you. <laughs> well, I'm excited to have you on because not only are you a friend and colleague, but you're a mentor. Your certification in applied functional science was a huge cornerstone to my training. And I just think everything that you guys do at the Gray Institute is brilliant. So I'd love to hear a little bit of your background, how you got into the performance training world, and what made you decide to be a personal trainer? So when I started 34 years ago, personal training really wasn't a thing. So I didn't decide to become a personal trainer. I played college soccer. I was going to be a physical therapist. And when I got into at that point, that was when physical therapy was just transitioning from an undergraduate degree, getting you somewhere professionally to really requiring a graduate degree. And all the therapists I spoke to at the time said, you know, play ball, get a get an undergraduate degree because you're going to have to go to grad school anyway. So I had that choice because at WVU, they had a professional program where junior and senior year, if you were in the physical therapy program, you probably weren't going to be playing college ball. The you know, it was a 24-7 sort of experience. So I played college and finished playing soccer and then was going to go to grad school. But my dad wasn't of the best of health. So I wanted to get a master's that I knew I could get done in, in two years and got an exercise phys master's. And then he, he took very ill and I decided to stay home and not go back to PT school. And I sent out, I don't even know if some of your listeners will know what a Xerox copy is. I typed out a letter. Xerox copies and sent it to everybody in another thing that's old, the phone book. I looked up in the phone book, anything that might have to do with exercise or reconditioning and just said, hey, I'm looking, you know, I've, I've got more studies to do, but I'm happy to work for minimum wage. Just want to do something in the field. And this was that was actually the summer 
before, uh, between my first and second year of grad school. And the guy who is currently my boss and has become a business partner was the only one who answered. And he wrote on the back of the letter, I don't have a job for you, but I want to meet you. And he had just started a, a, a fledgling within the industry, a fledgling personal training company. And he was training housewives out of the front of a real hardcore bodybuilding and biker gym that was nearby. And he gave me one client that first summer, a kid who was going to go play college soccer. And literally to qualify as this kid's personal trainer, my, uh, my, my now dear friend, Doug said, what, watch me for half a session. And then he said, you think you could do this? And I said, sure. And so we predictably at that time, you know, we were doing to get this kid ready to play college soccer. I had him doing four sets of leg extensions and four sets of incline bench press and, and then three more sets of flies and decline bench press, and then maybe a pull down. And, you know, it was, it was totally, when I say old school, in this case, I mean, not good, you know, training. We, I, I probably wrecked that kid's shoulders and, uh, and, and got him actually less ready to play college soccer. But, and I think my boss paid me seven bucks an hour, was charging the kid 14 bucks a session and paying me seven, a 50, 50 split, which no personal trainer in the world gets now if they're working for a company. But that was the beginning of a wonderful relationship. So I went back to the second year of grad school, came home, ran into him and he said, what are you doing? And he had, he had opened up a bigger business and the short end of the story is I went to work for him. And about every four or five years, I would ponder going back to school first for a PhD in ex-phys and then, then to PT school and then to med school and did the requisite preparations. But at each stage, we were growing as a business and growing in our scope. Um, and it's not to say that I'm somebody who says that any professional should veer out of their lane, but the, the lane for personal training and what we were doing with people was expanding dramatically out of necessity. Because people would go to a physical therapist for six appointments and, uh, you know, conventionally at that time, and then they were sort of cut loose. So they'd go from six appointments with their tennis elbow to wanting to go play tennis again. And there was a huge chasm between the two scenarios. So admittedly, at that time, we were probably doing, they weren't great choices because our, our repertoire and our 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 palette of paints was very limited and small, almost exclusively sagittal plane. I mean, this was in the days where people weren't even doing lateral lunges with load, you know. And uh, uh, so we were, we, were, we were building and growing. And every time I'd think about going back to school, I'd say, wow, you know, I just was able to afford a car. That was nice. And at one of the stages I had afforded a you know, place to live. I was like, it's, it's, been a, it's been a wonderful ride in that regard. And what he, what I was really fortunate to be able to do was he liked to do the business side and didn't like to travel. I didn't mind traveling and wanted to learn as much as I could. What I realized about those other professions was not that I didn't want to do them, but more than that, I wanted to know a lot of what they knew, you know? So in those days, you know, he would, he would say, okay, you go study and learn, and then you bring it back to us. So I would sneak into physical therapy lecture, you know, conferences and massage therapy conferences and things of that sort, as well as the personal training stuff. But in those days, the personal training or the strength and conditioning was whoever won the Super Bowl last year, that strength and conditioning coach 
was the guy to see, you know. But the thing that was funny was that every year, different strength coach winning the Super Bowl and everybody, all of us just going, wow, that guy was a lot different than the guy before within the same sport, you know. So it started to open up my eyes and probably a lot of people's eyes that there might be more than one way to skin a cat. And you might actually have to individualize what you're doing to the group or people within the group that you're dealing with. And along that journey, what one of the people I encountered was Gary Gray and Dave and his partner, Dave Tiberio. And they it really struck a big chord. In fact, I remember the first time I saw Gary speak, it was me and 39 physical therapists in Denver. And I called my partner, my business partner at lunch of the first day. And he said, wow, how's it going? And I said, it's unbelievable. He said, are you going to be able to come back and teach it? And I said, absolutely not. I said, I have no idea what he's talking about, but it makes total sense. And much of what Gary was putting forward back then now is really accepted as just fundamental truth. But at the time, it was really out there. It was as Michelle Dahlkurt would say, something is weird until it's not weird. Well, when Gary first started and was was teaching what became the foundations of what we now call AFS, it was really weird to a lot of people, you know. And uh, but that was the beginning of uh, of a love affair with that perspective on movement and strength training and reconditioning. So, so you connected with Gary and Dave, and you're oh, like, this AFS or applied functional science stuff is intriguing. It sounds like the truth to me. What was your journey with them once you found out that this is what you wanted to dig into? So I went, I went to see Gary and eventually Dave joined him uh, present on their three-day week, sort of weekend seminar. I listened to the same seminar probably four different times in four different spots in the country. And one of the things that's really great about Gary and Dave is, unlike some people that I've met in the movement industry who might say, no, I've been correct all along, Gary and Dave have recognized when they've got to go a different direction. When, wow, other people expose them to perspective and they realize, wow, we got to change the way we're thinking about that or this. So each time I'd watch Gary and Dave present, it was better. Now, part of that was that my mind was more open to what they were saying, right? I was able to grasp the sophistication of what they were talking about. But it was also that they were getting better and better at presenting it and uh, advancing not only how they taught it, but their thought process along the way. And so that led into, the first year, Gary and Dave did their full one-year mentorship, the gift program. I was one of the, I was lucky enough to be, you know, my, my business was lucky, you know, fortunately said, yeah, go do it. You know, but it was a big, big time and money investment, and, but it was well worth it. And, and watching that program over the last 13 years, maybe 14 now, grow and shift and expand, I think the gift program's really an impressive operation. And I know one of the things that you wanted, you had asked me to think about was just talking about applied functional science as a governance. The thing that I've loved most about the gift program and applied functional science and what we tried to present in the CAFS was that movement really lacks an algorithm that can be applied to everybody, that everybody's got to be treated individually. Now, you may run into a lot of commonalities. Most people with any professional experience would say, yeah, but there, we see common things that, we, that lead us down certain solution pathways faster. And I'd agree with that fully. But I just love the idea that everybody I looked at was sort of a blank canvas 
and I got to figure out their equation and their their personal algorithm as to how to get them to move better or continue to move well. So the gift journey for me has been one that every year going back to help teach and hearing the material and hearing other people's, the students' ideas. Because remember, the, the people who are taking gift, as you experienced, are, it's an elite crew. You know, it's a, that, that room is, is really an impressive room. And I think what I, I was saying before with the break was that first year, I was the dumbest guy in the room. And I, I mean that because I'd come from a personal training scenario where you looked around the room and you sized up everybody right away. I don't know if it's that way, it was that way in physical therapy or in other industries, but it is definitely that way in personal training. And, you know, it was a, wasn't an accurate judgment all the time. But so I was, I was listening to everybody talk and checking everybody out. And I was like, wow, there are some sharp cats here. Uh, I want to stick around this, this consortium, if you will. And every year, Mike, there is a new group of students in there who are, and I say students, but you know, they're adult professionals who they bring hot takes and, and challenge, you know, the thought process and force AFS to expand appropriately. Because like I said earlier, nobody's right, right out of the gates, you know, um, and Gary and Dave have always recognized that they're, they, I think they joke that they might know, you know, this much, you know, one inch out of the mile long journey of, of the, the science of move movement, you know, but we're getting. Well, you've mentioned AFS or applied functional science multiple times, and you created with the help of the Grand Institute, the certification in applied functional science. So for all the listeners, what is applied functional science? So for me, I'm going to, I'm going to leave sort of the, the course's definition of a, to me, applied functional science is all things movement and subsequently all things that affect movement. You know, so just to speak in sort of common perspectives, you and I were talking about our health concerns off camera. We both had open heart surgery. Well, you know, in, the, in the, that first two or three months post-op, man, you know, the body's so fragile. And I went from three days before surgery, moving like a, uh, like a decent adult athlete to, you know, three days after surgery, understandably walking like I was, you know, had aged 40 years. But then so, so obviously circumstances affect how you move, but then mentality as well. A year after my surgery, I still was mentally fragile about how I moved and whatnot. And it changed the way I stood. It changed the way I, I walked. It changed the way I, I engaged my body. And so whether it's, I think from applied functional science, sim- simple perspective, I would say, you know, the, the physical, the emotional uh, and the behavioral all have some impact and you could get in, you could, you know, categorize in different ways. Human movement is affected by everything. You know, just knowing that I'm talking to you, an old friend who I respect and admire, you know, I've got energy. I didn't need a cup of coffee. And if we were going to play ball right now, that would affect how I moved. On the other hand, if you gave me bad news, ah, man, you know, so there, there would have been there would have been systemic responses to that, and that affects how I move. I, I listened to an interesting discussion this morning that was talking about post-athletics and sort of people's self-perspective or self-image and their sense of worth. And they were talking about professional athletes. But I know, like in my clientele, I deal with it. It made me think of clients I work with right away who they did it because their bodies have changed. They're with the aging process, maybe with their nutritional habits, just 
the, the burdens of adult life, their self-image has dramatically shifted. In their own way, they're like elite professional athletes who no longer have a team to go to, or you know, they've they've got a disconnect, and that affects the way they move. So I know when I was a young trainer before AFS and inexperienced in a lot of ways, I'd have been passing judgment on those situations. Now appreciating through the study of applied functional science how many things impact somebody's movement and exercise habits and joint comforts. We, we joke in my gym that muscles are what we're after, but joints run the, run the show. <laughs> you know, uh, let's not do anything to get those muscles where, and the metabolism working that's going to jack up your joints because you got to use them for the rest of your life. The muscles, eh, they'll change a little bit, but those joints, when they start hurting, you know, that's, that's a big, big deal. So AFS has, has enabled me to be, to have, a, I think, a more, a more empathetic and more strategic perspective on how to help people when it comes to their movement, but by blending in their heart, their head, as well as their, you know, structure. One of the things I love about you and I loved about the certification in applied functional science is how you look at everyone as an individual. But with that being said, you train all sorts of athletes and there has to be some common themes or some big rocks that you focus on. What are some of those things that you know that are going to be part of your program design or part of your training session when you're working with all sorts of athletes or people? So uh, assessment is an important thing, of course, I mean, not to be too rudimentary, but taking a look at them and trying to, to look at them, n- not sort of prefigure, well, this guy's a right-handed thrower, so I know we're going to have these deficits, but really watch them move and see what deficits or strengths they have. And I, I think in an, in an elevator speech sort of presentation, I know I've got to pay attention to their, their ankles, their hips, and their upper back. And because if I don't have quality movement there, it's going to affect other things. My group is working with a, a young tennis player right now. And one of my uh, younger trainers said, you know, I think her serve is affected because she doesn't get great thoracic extension. And he said, I think I want to start really working her that way. And I said, oh, hold on a sec. I said, you're asking her to do what she can't do. You could be right. But so just working in the isolation of her thoracic spine, let's pay attention to how she moves rotationally and laterally. And he said, well, she moves okay there. And I said, well, let's, let's try to get her better extension by working in those two areas where she's successful. And that's a tenet of, that's something that applies to everybody. You got to find where they're successful and then try to modify to get them to move better where they're not successful, as opposed to, you know, uh, wow, Pat, your shoulders are rounded. Just pull those shoulders back and keep them back, man. All you're going to do is just more, more two-handed pull-ins and your posture is going to improve. And we've all been there and we've all just been frustrated by, wow, it, you know, I don't see it getting any better. So treating everybody as an individual, the paying attention to the, the, the general big rocks physically or, or movement, the movement brains of the foot and ankle, the hip and the, and the thoracic spine. And recognizing that, that each of them is going to have, have different sort of currencies for success. I think that book from 10 years ago would say a different love language. You know, uh, I, I had an athlete the other day. Uh, and, and when I say athlete, I think all of my clients, all of our clients are athletes in the physical therapy around, you know, they're all, they're all putting in extra effort to get some sort of outcome. But this, this happened to be a high school athlete. And she, I said, what was the best part of, you know, playing on the varsity team the other night for the first time? And she said, 
hearing my name called, right? So for some kids, it would be being on the field. For, but for her, it was hearing her name called one time on the loudspeaker. And I said, so that's cool. And she goes, I really want to start so I can run through that tunnel. You know what I mean? And I was, I was just, it, it warmed my heart, you know, it was so it was cute. But it, what it showed me was that, man, she doesn't care if she's sitting in her hip better or if she's getting better elastic recoil in an exercise, sort of the things that would geek me. So moving forward, when I train her, I won't mention it every time, but she's going to get a, a, a buzz off of you getting closer to running through that tunnel, you know, and we'll have to figure out a slightly different currency when she gets out of there, you know. And, you know, one of the things, Mike, that, that I've always had trouble with, I'm interested in what you have to say about this, is with regard to that currency of a client is, is goal setting. In my experience, goal setting has a lot of challenges from an exercise standpoint, especially with older populations, because the reality is if for me at 55, if you could give me a program, which I bet you could, that from here to 65 would assure that I maintain the same thresholds, the same capacities, the same, whatever my measure of success physically was going to be, I'd stay where I am today. I would pay full boat for that right now. You know, that would be worth full prepayment to know that at 65, I could be the same as I am at 55. Obviously, that's not realistic. So to give a 55-year-old guy goals that, wow, so a year from now, we're going to have you doing this many more pull-ups. I just haven't found that to be realistic. So I, I've, I've found more success dealing with sort of daily and weekly currency uh, inspirations. How about you? I mean, you deal with college athletes who have seasons and, and time frames. I bet goal setting is big in your side. Yeah, I love the idea of looking at the whole person and what are they? What is it going to take for them to be successful on the basketball court? And they'll come in with some people have specific goals. I want to be able to jump higher. And you would think, well, that would be all it's about, or maybe we have to just work on the jumping program. But there's so many different areas that could take to be able to get them more successful. So one one of those could be jumping higher. But maybe they don't want to jump higher. Maybe they want to finish better. And that might be quickness, being able to get past their defender. It might be positioning. Right. And so I think looking holistically on how we're going to make them better and then being able to focus on that because I, so many of our athletes are driven by numbers. And so how do you be able to have that but not have it be the whole cake? That's just part of it. The other part is going to be the process, you know, making the commitment because one of the reasons this is called a hoop commitment podcast is because I think goals are great. But we don't always have control over the goals of whether or not, hey, I want to be able to shoot 90% from the free throw line. You know, you do have control over your practice, over your routines, over your form, but you don't always have control over that final shooting percentage. And so I think balancing that out too, of letting them know there's a lot of different ways we're going to be able to get you better. And of course, vertical leap is one of them, but let's really focus on the process. And then if we focus on the process and you get the outcome, great. If we focus on the process and the outcome's not quite what you wanted, well, maybe there's another area we can look on. Maybe it's body comp that's going to help you with your vertical. So that's what I love about applied functional sciences. The easy way is someone comes in and says, I have a goal of jumping higher. Do this program and you'll be able to jump higher. And that does work for a small set of the population. But we just know that the human body, the mind, the spirit is so mystical that there's all these different things that impact each other. So I like teaming up goals with commitments with the bigger picture. Right. That's interesting. In, in your world, 
the, you know, if, if I were to say, okay, well, you're dealing with that competitive athlete side and for the sake of the conversation, I'll say I'm dealing with the, the, you know, adult athletes, if you will, aging process, you, you do have variables. You know, the other team is playing defense uh, that, that impacts things in our, in my case, you know, the aging process is undefeated, (laughs) Um, you know, and it's navigating that well. And that, that was one of the things that, that really struck me, you know, the, the, the heart surgeries that we've both had were pretty real, you know, they're pretty impressive scenarios. And I felt so different after surgery in that short term, that fragility, the first couple of weeks, it really gave me sort of a, an empathy for preparing for the aging process. There's a guy who has a YouTube video. He doesn't have it out. Somebody, I think ESPN put it out, but he's a 90 year old triathlete. His name is Lou Hollander. Um, and watching it is just, you know, it's just massively inspiring. Um, but like with many elite athletes, you know, you use the, you use his, his example and his mindset for inspiration. But do I think most 90-year-old people should be running? No, probably not. You know, but in fact, I'm wondering if half the world should be running sometimes the, just based on position. And have you ever seen a jogger smile? I just never see anybody. <laughs> there's no celebration at any point, at least when you're playing basketball. You know, there's a couple couple rah rah moments but um all kidding aside lou lou said hey getting old is hard and you have to prepare for it and so that's one of the things we we try to try to try to work with people and say short-term goals and performance goals have have good value to keep you keep you rolling and everybody's different some people need them some people don't but what everybody has down the road is our physical scenarios that you want to make sure that you're ready for, you know, and the only way to get ready for them is to keep your body moving and make sure that what you're, what you're doing in the gym, isn't jacking you up outside the gym, you know? So the, the old days and with the, even the elite athletes that we worked with the one, one NFL quarterback, our perspective was we never want you to have a workout hangover. You know, I don't want you to feel today's workout tomorrow at all because you have to be doing stuff almost daily. The, if you're not training, you're throwing the ball, you're, you know, you're doing walk, you know, you're walking through, you, you have to be able to move well at all times. So some people would say, well, Pat, how do you know if you trained him hard enough? If you got him close enough to his thresholds? Um, well, who's to say that soreness is a little soreness means you are only a little overtrained. There, there are studies now, studies in the last five or 10 years that, that are really bringing into question whether or not you know, just in the realm of weightlifting, failure versus two reps shy of failure as a benchmark, you know, do they provide that much difference for the wear and tear you're, you're putting the system under? And at least with the adult realm, I can't say, I can't speak with expertise, with the expertise that you have on the 19 or 20 year old body, but I can tell you in the adult population that staying, leaving a little bit on the table every workout so that you may well be able to do something the next day, maybe not as intense. There's got to be, you know, uh, flux in the in the, the demands. But leaving something on the table, there's a lot to be said for that in the long run, because for I think for anybody, the freshman athlete or the the guy who's getting ready to retire and wants to play golf, you want to be able to be doing it four years later, and so. I happen to, I have, I've had the good fortune of working with a lot of female soccer players who, you know, on the high school and collegiate level and uh, a few at a higher level, but the, 
uh, those experiences have all shown me that, man, you bring in a kid who's succeeded in a high school soccer, she's probably pretty fast twitch. And when she gets to a to most simple college weight programs, she's going to put on muscle and the strength coach is going to love her. The question is whether or not she becomes a good weightlifter or she becomes a better soccer player. And so this one young lady we're working with right now, she, you know, she blew her back deadlifting. I'm not blaming deadlifting, the, but, but that was a focus. And by her second year, you know, she's a really strong kid for everything she needed to do. She probably didn't need to get her, her, her deadlift as strong as they were trying to get it, you know, in terms of, of a causative relationship to improving on the soccer field. Um, so the, we try to, I think one of the things that AFS has led me to really have a good, a, a, a clear perspective on is do things that really keep your, your big outcome in mind, both on a short-term level and a long-term level. The, that's, that's been an important thing. And I'm sure you live that in your world too. How does the principle of 3D fit into your philosophy, you know, whether that's mind, body, spirit, or the three planes of motion? On a constant level. You know, the, I'm certain that in most athletic training and conditioning formats, you have to lay out a, a periodization program. There's wisdom in it. There's value. But outside of that, or even within that, you got to roll with somebody on a daily basis, right? I, I remember working with, with a, my, the, first, the second guy that I worked with in the NBA. I mean, I had mapped out his whole summer. And he came in to me about three weeks in. We're getting ready to go into a really important week. And he said, hey, by the way, I'm out for the next three days. And I was like, what? And he said, I got to go see my mom. And I was like, what are you talking about? We, are, we built up to these three days. You know? And so that's an extreme example. But you, know, you got somebody who came in and they're on a lousy night's sleep. You can't push them hard. So from a, from a mind, body, spirit standpoint, you know, that can be extrapolated out a number of ways. The, somebody comes in brokenhearted because she said no to, you know, to his invitation to go to the prom. We might have to modify the program that day. On the other hand, you got somebody who's coming in and shouldn't be ready to kill it. You might have to roll with it and adjust what they're doing. From a, a more a specific scenario in the body, we try to 3D as many things as we can. but. One of the, I think one of the mistaken reputations that AFS has gotten is that there's not a time and place to load up a single plane. There certainly is, right? The, uh, there's nothing like sagittal plane, loaded sagittal plane work to stimulate testosterone output. Uh, and the reason the, the, the classic lifts are still are considered classic is because they're stable. You can, relative to your own strength, you can expose your system to a lot of external load. And the science is clear, you know, the response that both, both historical and in studies, testosterone levels go up and it's easier to put on muscle mass, right? So you got a kid who's got to put on some padding for performance sake or uh, just, just aesthetics. The, there's nothing wrong with sagittal plane work, but you've got to make sure that you're complementing that with transverse plane and, and frontal plane stimulus or combinations. I know one of the things we talk about the, the the three planes, but I think if you if you cornered me, I'd say something that everybody has in common is almost everybody benefits from some nice diagonal patterns. Um, that they're efficient, they're they're different. They make assessment of movement dif more difficult. That's why like in the in the, the Gray Institutes, their preferred sort of protocol assessment is is our three D maps. It makes it easy for the 
for the eye to see, is there a problem in the sagittal plane or the transverse plane or the frontal plane? Whereas when you train diagonally, you're blending all those planes and it might be hard to see where the compensation is. But once you know what somebody's strengths and weaknesses are, getting them working in diagonal patterns with resistance and at different speeds and in different foot positions, whoo, it's hard not to think that it's hard not to apply that to a lot of different people and athletes and, and tasks because that it ends up being a common denominator for a lot of people. So one of our fellows of applied functional science, Garrett Maidenwald over at Tennessee, I was a great presentation. He just did a couple weeks ago on how to blend what people might think is traditional lifts, what we, with what we might think of as applied functional science or the functional training. And it was mm-hmm. really cool to see him use all of these things as tools, you know, whether that's wow. diagonal patterns, three planes of motion, whether that's loading a sagittal plane lift, like a deadlift or a squat heavy. And then it's kind of nice not have to be tied to one camp. This is all I can do. And I think, you know, if you really understand applied functional science, we understand that all of these things are tools that can be used for the benefit of this one person in this one instance. Yep. Without question. The, now, in the course of most of the, the, the Gray Institute education stuff that, that you and I have been through, they don't spend a lot of time on the conventional heavy Olympic lifts because there are plenty of people who teach that really well. But I, I think all of us have lived. All movement has a time and place. And for some people, certain things no longer have a time and place, you know, or too much of a good thing, you know, and I think in the fitness realm and probably in the realm, still in the realm of competitive athletics, conventional, you know, weightlifting, whether you consider that Olympic lifting or bodybuilding styles, the, they probably get a little too much airtime because they, while not easy by any means, they are somewhat simpler to master and be able to say, okay, go do this on your own. And for somebody working out, I mean, there's a reason why every one of the, the, the programs you see in muscle and fitness or men's health is three sets of this and three sets of that and three sets of that, because it's simpler for the recipients to be able to implement. I'm not saying the people who write those articles, I bet they're all brilliant and they all recognize, man, if I could be working face to face with you, I'd be having you do some other stuff, you know, the, but yeah, having, having a tool belt that's expansive is what AFS is all about. And it's, it's really that, that diversity in not just joint angle and movement and task and speed of motion and position, but even an energy system, you know, and that's, that stuff that's outside of the gray Institute's uh, general purview, but there's so much evidence now that metabolic flexibility from a long-term health standpoint is critical, you know, um, uh, whereas in some performance scenarios, the, I think w- there was a, a chapter over the last 15 or 20 years of, nah, you're a sprinter. You don't need any stamina. And, or you're, you're a distance. You're, you're a long-term exertional athlete. You don't need power. You know? And, of course, that's, you got to find a way within your training, within the precious minutes that you have, to, to get some, an appropriate dose of what you need and not just live in one bucket, you know, that, and that's challenging. It's challenging. And it's challenging for, it's really challenging if somebody is sort of in their own bubble, you know, if they're stuck in the high school weight room where it's just going to be, you know, squat bench and deadlift. And they're thinking, man, I don't know, you know, I, I got to cut laterally, you know, 
is just playing ball going to be enough? Or should I, are there things I could do that besides that, that would help me, you know? And I want to, I want to work on my acceleration and my starting strength. Should it just be a, a, a bilateral deadlift, you know, hip hinge, or could I get into different stances and do some, some dead work, if you will. So, uh, uh that, that, that variability is so, uh, to me, it's the secret sauce. It's the secret sauce for everybody, whether you're trying to bodybuild or do performance work or recondition the uh, post ACL, that finding a way to have effective variability in what you're doing is critical. So tell me what this means to you, because this is a little bit of a mouthful, but the Grand Institute has a core strategy and it's this, to create and manage unique environments with the utilization of drivers to encourage the desired chain reaction transformation. And to me, you were kind of mentioning a lot of this stuff. What does that core strategy mean to you? So to to pull out a small piece, I think one of the summary points there is the environment. Because as a coach, as as a teammate, as a workout partner, you create an environment for that person that you're working with that is vital. And that environment is, is not just what the connection with the person, but is also what you're choosing to do and not do. And one of our colleagues, Lenny Parasino says, you know, we're all environmentalists. (laughs) You got to create the environment, man. And uh, that just doesn't mean rah, rah, get somebody up and and pump though. That's, that could be part of it from a, from a mental prep and a behavioral standpoint an emotional standpoint. But the, if it's, it's choosing the right, when I, when you use the term drivers, and very often in AFS, we talk about physical drivers, literally my arm driving me back from my backswing or my torso. If I'm a better golfer, maybe my hips driving me back instead of my arm. But those emotional drivers and uh, spiritual drivers and, you know, you've got to you've got to have a sense of, of all the things that come into play and not only drive the person's movement, but their their reception of that movement and their recovery from that movement in the right way. What are some of those key things that you'd want to include in creating an environment for a basketball player or a basketball team in the weight room? So the, I have a privilege. I have the best volunteer gig in the world, Mike. I'm, I, I'm the, I'm lucky enough to work with the local high school basketball team, uh, the girls team, and we're, they're, they're, they're two time defending state champs. The, now I'm not going to tell you, that that's because I've been involved with them for three years. The because that first year we got the best incoming freshman class in the history of the school, <laughs> and that probably has more to do with it than me. But what we've tried to le- educate those young women to is, okay, you can't all be doing the same thing. That you have different needs, you have different body types. The um, what you do have to keep in mind is. Let's find things that your work for your body that might suit what you're good at, your successes, and that we can modify to to get you better at your deficits or your weaknesses. So, uh, sort of like going back to that college soccer player I mentioned, she was a really good deadlifter. You know, <laughs> the, the the weight room loved her doing deadlifting, but it was in excess, and so, and especially for what she wanted to get out of it. She didn't want to be a better deadlifter. She wanted to perform on the soccer field. Deadlifting got in the way. So we try really to instill in the, the weight room with, with our basketball team that we want to do things that, that serve basketball, 
uh, as well as their long-term health. You know, the, the simple sort of contrarian perspective would be, well, man, the basketball players do a lot of things. It's all two-footed jumping. Um, why are you doing so much single leg hopping with them? The, well, doing some single leg hopping with them in the weight room with different, you know, band setups and whatnot, because I want to stimulate their, the, the communication between their ankle, their hip and their upper back. And I want to expose them to some, oh gosh, positions. And then if I got the soccer team in there, the contrarian would come in and say, man, if you watch YouTube videos of elite soccer players, it's all hopping, you know, while they dribble. Why are you doing so much two-footed jumping? And I'd say, well, because they do a lot of two-footed jumping or a lot of hopping when they're on the field. So I don't want to overcook that stimulus, you know. Um, uh, you know, so th those are some of the ideas that we bring into play. The challenge with our young basketball players is basketball has become a year-round sport. The, at the collegiate level, they actually play less basketball than they did in high school with the AAU circuit. So getting them to have a, a basketball offseason where we could really can start to maybe prepare their body better, it's really an ongoing process. Um, same, with same with soccer. Soccer and basketball, school level, they're just really brutal schedules. So using the weight room and dosing the weight room properly has become a big challenge. We love it when kids get to college because it's summertime. You know, they're still playing ball as they should, but it's with they're in control of the ball they play as opposed to having an AAU coach who's doing something. It could be really good, but it has nothing to do. It has no respect for whether that kid's dosing in any extra force in the weight room or in, in some sort of multi-directional scenario. So you're, what you can do in the weight room when I deal with those players during AAU season, it's totally, I have to, I have to treat it on a daily basis. I can't plan it at all. I got to say, so what did the guy, what did you do this week? You know, well, we had a three hour practice on Sunday and we practice again tonight. So I'm off Tuesday and Wednesday. So Tuesday has got to be some sort of recovery day. And Wednesday is the day before the next three hour practice, you know, that is scheduled last minute. So trying to respect that you want to stimulate the body and not punish it. Uh, when a kid is, especially when the high school athlete is in that, that on that, that treadmill of AAU and travel soccer, it's hard. Football is actually, you know, football at, at a one point in time sort of had a wore the, wore the black hat, the villains had of being, oh man, tough, you know, those kids. But football is the only reasonable sport now in high school. You know, they have they have a season and then they prepare for the next season. You know, <laughs> I love football <laughs> for that for that reason. So. Oh, that's such a great point. Yeah, you would never have three tackle football games in one day. And gosh, some of these AAU tournaments, you might oh play gosh. seven games yeah. in the course of a weekend. Yeah, so, uh, I never thought about football actually being the most sane sport when it comes to a year long program. On some level. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, uh, and certainly it's got got its challenges. But, you know, I having not grown up playing football, the uh, but being a huge fan when my son played two years of high school football, I, I really I was won over. You know, I'm not saying that I, you know, that I think it's smart for two guys to run in and crash heads as hard as possible. But my son gained a lot of value through that experience. And uh, the funniest thing, I, he had, my son had never been a kid who, who was really rah-rah, screaming, you know, get himself smacked, get himself psyched. So when he played freshman football and he came home and he, he had gotten sort of involved, 
I said, so what do you think of that part of it? That protect this house. And he said, it's, you know, in terms of mind, body, and spirit, he said, it's totally necessary. He goes, everybody's a little scared. You know, he goes, you got to get, get through that. And I was like, makes total sense. You know, they are, they are creating an environment that is necessary for what they're going to go do. You know, whether it be at the youth level where they might be a little scared or at the elite level where they've got, you know, high stakes at hand. So it was an interesting application of AFS in a way that I didn't expect. Pat, thank you so much for helping create the certification in applied functional science and giving us that huge gift that whether you're a personal trainer, strength coach, massage therapist, physical therapist, it's so great. Anyone interested in movement is going to benefit from it. So I just want to thank you again for being a friend colleague, mentor, where can our listeners find out more about you? I, I, my company is called one-to-one fitness. We, we put out information on Instagram just to, just to try to uh, educate. We, we don't have any certification or we're not selling anything other than personal training sessions. Uh, and you know, one of the interesting things in this zoom world that COVID has created is we train more trainers now who want to do a zoom session and there's no escaping. They're trying to learn so that they can apply stuff with their clients while they, you know, get their body worked on. Uh, but that's been a real treat. The other, uh, during COVID, I, I trained a kid, uh, a young man who was at 55. Everybody seems like a kid to me. So I, I don't mean any, any disrespect. Uh, in the old days, that was a real, that was, a, you know, hey, kid, hang in there. That was a real, uh, I sound a little cheesy. But I trained a young man who was a personal trainer in, um, uh, in Australia. And he made no bones about it. He was he goes, yeah, I took CAFS. I loved what you guys did. And yeah, I say you guys because CAFS, it certainly, I have, I'm a small part of it. Lenny Parasino and Dave Tiberio and Gary Gray and Doug Gray, you know, they were the big drivers there. But, you know, could you train her? I said, sure, happy to. So we do, we do work with more trainers than we used to as clients to try to help them get more fit and learn some stuff. One-to-one fitness on Instagram and, uh, and a one-to-one website. You can track me down and reach out if you want to. So, and the Gray Institute, the Gray Institute can find me. But if you reach out to the Gray Institute, there's a lot of people there you will probably want to talk to before you get to me. <laughs> I don't think so. After listening to you today, I'm sure you're going to have a lot of people reaching out to you. Man, just so great seeing your face. And thanks again for coming on the show. Mike, it's great to be with you. And go Zags. Now that's a wrap on episode 86. And I hope you join me next week where I get to interview Gonzaga women's basketball coach, Craig Fortier. He has one of the coolest basketball stories I've ever heard. And I just selfishly wanted to hear it again and then share it with all you. So if you have someone in your life that loves hoops but is either starting late or is a late bloomer, you'll be inspired by his story. And all of you who are committed will earn your X. <laughs>